You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we thank You for this morning, for beautiful weather, for the blessings of Your grace and goodness to us in Christ. We thank You that we have Your Word, which is to us a light and a revelation of Yourself and how lost we would be without that. We ask that You would watch over us now and brood over us as a congregation as we gather together as Your people to meet. We pray that the result of this would be Your glory and that You would be pleased to teach us today from Your Word. May our time spent be profitable. We ask for Jess that You would... Um, bring healing to him and restore his health so that he is able to return to teaching. And we ask God that you would do this quickly and for your glory's sake and help him to rest today and to and get better quickly and to use his time while he is down wisely. Thank you for the blessing that it is to be called your child. And we commit our time now to you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, something on a lighter note, I'm not sure if this is actually entirely lighter or not, but it might make you either laugh or cry. It kind of made me cry. When we were down in San Antonio after we came back out of Texas, before we flew out, the evening before our plane left, we went to a, a Chinese uh, restaurant. And uh, while I'm on that subject, that we got a new recipe. A shrimp wrapped in bacon sautéed in butter. That was something else. I had never... What? That was incredible. On the way out of the restaurant that night, I, I grabbed, I noticed a little, a little flyer, a little postcard-sized flyer on the, a stack of them on the counter next to the exit, on the front door there. So I grabbed one and took it outside and read it, and I thought, oh, I've got to get a couple of these, one for Jess and Dave, and, and Thomas would like this, so I grabbed a stack of them and, and left with them. And this is what it is. This is. There's nothing on this that would indicate to you that this is a Christian event, but it, other than it comes from the Summit Christian Center of San Antonio, Texas. So on the back, it's, or on the front, it just has the word love at the top and then around the word love is all these different languages, amor and uh, so other languages, the word love in other languages. This says an Easter experience. Saturday, April 11th, Sunday, April 12th gives the times. Arrive early. Experience the multimedia presentation opener. And then down below it says invite a friend. And down here it says the best way to tell your friends about Summit let them see for themselves. And then you flip it up on its side, and this is, of course, the attractions that you don't want to miss out on. And let me read it to you. It says, don't miss out! Exclamation point. Special activities for children during services. Petting zoo, a moon bounce, carousel rides, games, Easter eggs, giveaways, and the Easter bunny. Bring your camera. This is on Easter Sunday. It's the worship service. Now, sometimes I tell you about the hideous things that are done in modern evangelicalism and the, the silliness that is rampant in the churches. And sometimes I describe things and people just look at me like, like you're listening to a high-pitched noise. You can't quite... What? That's, that's not... Sorry, that is not out of the ordinary. This is unfortunately a standard fare. So I, I took this into the van and I thought, well, let's see what the teenagers think of this. So we all climbed into the van and I turned on the light inside and as we were driving away, I said, let me read you this. So I read it to him just like I did you. I got to the end of it and one of the teenagers said, it sounds more like a circus than a church. 
And I thought, they get it. Man, I just, I cannot tell you the number of, of uh, ways I could take that. Exhibit A. <laughs> Watch, I mean, I've told you about clown communion before, right? Now, see, what is most devastating about this is the philosophy behind it. See, what this implicitly says is that Jesus is not enough for people. You have to gussy Him up in order to make people want to come. So who comes to stuff like this? Goats come to stuff like this. This is for goats. This is not for sheep. Sheep don't come to church for these... I can, the carnival comes to Sandpoint twice a year. I can go to a carnival and get these things. I don't go to church to get these things. Unbelievers who come to a church service like this end up thinking that that's what church is all about. And so they come on Easter Sunday and you set a level for them, an expectation, a standard, that this is what church is. This is what we're willing to do to get your attention or to keep get you here or to keep you here. And then the following Sunday, what do you do? You either have to maintain the same standard of silliness or you've got to ratchet it up to keep them coming back or you've got to disappoint them and go down some level. And not offer them the same type of entertainment. That's what's vexing about this. What does this say about our Savior? Is He not glorious enough to attract men to Himself because of who He is? He is. And if people will not come to Christ because of who He is, then there's nothing else that you can give them that will draw them to it. The Gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation, and the Savior is enough. Uh, Peg had something, I think. Go ahead. Right. Use entertainment to draw them in, but then you got to bait and switch. At some point, you appeal to their flesh to get them into the door. And then at some point, you have to switch it and say, no, you got to deny your flesh, you got to crucify your flesh, you got to die to your flesh. Sorry. No? Oh, that's true. <laughs> Good point. There's no bait and switch in a lot of these churches. Yeah. Well, if you're going to give them the true gospel, you've got to bait and switch them at some point. Because you've got to switch from this mentality or this philosophy. And then how, once you've got them in there with a moon bounce and the Easter bunny, how is it that you transition from that to the gospel? How is it then, at what point are you willing to offend them? Which is what the gospel is. It's an offense. At some point in that spectrum... You have got to jump right into the middle of somebody's chest and offend them with a message that is highly offensive. The gospel message is highly offensive. How do you make that transition? By, by gusting it up and entertaining people like that, you make that transition even more difficult to make. Because then you have to overcome all of the entertainment that you've just fed them and then offend them. If you just say, come on in, we'll offend you. At least we're being honest up, up front. But if you entertain them and then try and give them the gospel, 
You either have to try and give them the Gospel in such a way that they're not offended, in which case you've got to do something to the Gospel, or you've got to offend them to give them the true Gospel. And what we're seeing is not that churches are willing to offend after they've entertained people to death. Not that they're willing to offend, but they're actually just saying, you know what, this whole it's better to just not offend, period. And so the Gospel gets pushed into the closet, and you get lots of messages about God's love and goodness and living together and how to have a better career and all this other stuff. And then the church declines. Well, no, the church grows. Right. The reason I bring this up is not because I like to beat on other churches or to beat a dead horse or anything like that. I'm not trying to do that at all. I think it's instructive and it should teach us that this all goes back to theology. You have to have a right theology of who God is and what the Gospel is and what our responsibility is and what our role is and what we're to be doing. And you understand those things. You don't get off on these tangents. And the, Look, the motive behind this card, there's not an ill motive in it. The, the motive is absolutely, completely understandable. It's benign. They, they just want people to come. They want people to be helped. But the question is, how do you do that? How do you help people? Is, is that the best thing to do? For the church, and unfortunately, the fruit of it has never been good. I can't point you to one church that is willing to have a philosophy like that that has good fruit as a result. I, I know not one. It always that that compromise always produces a certain type of fruit. So let's move on to the two questions I was asked. Jess was asked one of them on Friday, and he asked me if I would deal with this. And this has to do with the subject of dispensationalism and hyperdispensationalism. How many of you have heard the term hyperdispensationalism? How many of you know what hyperdispensationalism is? No. Okay. Hyperdispensationalism is dispensationalism taken to a hyper degree. To make that easy. So let me remind you of what dispensationalism is, and then I'll talk about hyperdispensationalism. I'm going to give you a theological spectrum. On one side, you would have covenant theology. Covenant theology teaches that there's one people of God, that Israel and Adam and Noah and Abraham are just as much a part of the church, but they're the Old Testament church, so there's no distinction between the nation of Israel as a saved people or people who are saved in the nation of Israel and the body of Christ, which is the church made up of Gentiles. There's no distinction. It's just one covenant, which just sort of expands over the course of time, that grows and God sort of adds to that covenant and reshapes that covenant as time passes. That's covenantalism in its basic form. A dispensationalist, which is what I am, would say there is a distinction between Israel as the people of God and the church as the people of God. And that God is not done with the nation of Israel. That God chose a nation through whom He would bring the Messiah. And then their rejection of that Messiah sidelined that, or at least God has opened up now salvation to the Gentiles on the basis of faith. And they no longer have to proselytize to become Jews. So now you have the nation of Israel as a people of God and you have the church of the people of God, and that one of these days the church is going to be taken out of the world, and God is going to pick up again His plan for the nation of Israel. And that plan includes a judgment for the rejection of the Messiah, Daniel's 70th week. That plan includes the second return of Jesus Christ to establish His kingdom, and to sit on the throne of His father David, and to rule forever and ever, and establish a millennium, a kingdom of peace and righteousness, in which He rules justly from Jerusalem, physically, forever, with His saints, just as promised in the Old Testament. Hyperdispensationalism sort of cuts up the plan of God so um, 
so tightly that a hyper-dispensationalist would say there is now no longer any role for Israel. Everything that God is doing is for the Gentiles. So when you open up your Bible, you can take your Old Testament, basically forget that, no need to read that, that's not for us. Matthew, written to Jews. Mark, Luke, and John, all written about events prior to the establishment of this dispensation. So you don't have to read your Gospels. Acts is not written by, uh, was written and it deals with issues of Jewish Christians and Jewish believers. So you can get rid of the book of Acts. Any book written to Jews or by a Jew, Peter, James, John, all of those, forget them. Basically what you're left with is the books of the Apostle Paul because he's the Gentile apostle to the Gentile church. So now the question is, what about hyperdispensationalism? Is hyperdispensationalism biblical? Since I'm preaching the Old Testament book of Jonah, what do you think I would say to that? No, it's not biblical at all. Uh, it's not just a false doctrine. I think it's a hideous doctrine that I think chops up the Word of God and the plan of God um, far too radically. Um, the problem with one of the problems with hyperdispensationalism is it fails to deal with even in Paul's epistles um, issues that deal with or address the nation of Israel. I mean, what do you do with Romans nine, ten, and eleven? In the book of Romans, those Paul not only quotes extensively from the Old Testament, but a lot of his lessons are drawn from the Old Testament, and he's dealing there with the nation of Israel. So it, it is a false doctrine, and beware of anybody who tells you that we should only be reading the books of the Apostle Paul wrote, and that's all the Scripture for the church today. Dave. The hyper-dispensationalist? Uh, I... I Well, I, I, I can't think of any hyper-dispensationalist church in Sandpoint that I know of, or this area. Um, there may be some group meeting in a house somewhere that is hyper-dispensationalist. No, not really. And I can't think of any one denomination that their doctrinal characteristic is hyper-dispensationalism. What you're more likely to find is the occasional church within larger denominations, maybe the Baptist denomination, or this denomination, or that denomination, or certain parts of Baptist denominations that would be Hyper-dispensationalist. Paul was a Jew, right? So that's the issue of hyper-dispensationalism. Jess was asked. He wanted me to describe that and answer it. The second question, after this I'll open it up to you if we have any time left. The second question that I was asked on Friday was, and this I thought was a very good question since I just preached on this on last Sunday. I thought I would throw this out and then answer this question. And here was the question. In Matthew chapter 12, and let me read it. You can turn there if you want. In Matthew chapter 12, was it 12 or was it 11? Okay. Matthew chapter 11. Sorry beginning at verse 20 and 21, and I read these verses last week in the sermon and, and kind of explained how this ties in with the sign of the prophet Jonah. Then he began to denounce, verse 20, then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. 
Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Here's the question that was asked. This is a good one. If Sodom would have repented at the presence or the doing of signs in their midst, why did God not send a prophet to perform signs instead of judging Sodom? If all it took was for signs to be done, and they would have repented and remained till the day of Jesus, in accordance with Jesus' words, why didn't God just do signs in the city of Sodom in order to secure their repentance so that He wouldn't have to judge the city of Sodom? Does everybody understand the question? Wouldn't it have been far more gracious for God to just perform some signs there, secure Sodom's repentance, and they would have stayed until today, to remain until the day of Jesus at least. Ray, did you have a thought? That's the short answer to it. And Ray said, He has mercy on whom He will have mercy, and He hardens whom He hardens. Right? Could have given signs to numerous. Yeah, we got clown comments now. The essence of the question is. That God would judge Sodom when He could have just done some miracles and Sodom would have repented. Okay. Anna? Okay. One of the reasons He judged Sodom was to be an example to everybody else. Jeannie? Was it before Christ so their judgment? They paid for their sins by their judgment? How many miracles did Jonah perform in the city of Nineveh? None. Just uttered one sentence, right? One sentence. I mean, God said, go and say this. And Jonah said, I'll say that. No more. That's it. I'm ending it right there. That's what I was told to say. I'm not going to elaborate on this. Just one sentence. And still God used that to bring repentance to the city of Nineveh. So how many how many miracles does God have to do in order to secure re- repentance? Is he obligated to secure anybody's repentance? No, he's not. So had somebody done miracles in Sodom, would Sodom have repented? Well, they would have remained till this day, Jesus said. So if miracles if the miracles done in Bethsaida and Chorazin had been done in Sodom, Jesus said Sodom would have remained to this day. And the implication there is they would have repented. They would have turned. And that's why he's denouncing them. You didn't repent at this amount of light that you've been given. And look at this other city. If they had been given as much light as you've been given, they would have repented. That's the analogy that he's drawing. And it ties in with the, the judgment that he gives about the sign of the prophet Jonah. Right? So why didn't God change the heart? Why didn't God do, do enough signs in Sodom to change those hearts and secure their repentance? Doug? Okay. Doug says we're talking about an apple and an orange. Two different things between Nineveh and Sodom. Right. What? Let's look at it this way. How much light did Sodom reject? And, And Doug nailed it. The angels, Abraham, Lot was there. 
They had the light of creation. They had the light of their conscience. They knew that what they were doing was wrong. It's been revealed since the foundation of the world. God's invisible attributes. So they had that. They had seen that. They knew that. They knew that what they were doing was wrong. How much light had they sinned against? Sodom. A lot of light. So this really is the question. How much is God obligated to do in order to secure somebody's repentance? And the short answer to that is He's not obligated to do anything to secure anybody's repentance. The light of creation and the light of conscience are sufficient to judge any human being who has ever lived. We will not on the day of judgment, Sodom will not on the day of judgment be able to say, oh, if you had performed signs in our midst, and God will be able to say, no, you had sufficient light. You had sufficient light. And had He done miracles in Sodom, Sodom would have repented and remained to this day. That's why it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom. But they still sinned against sufficient light. More than sufficient light. They had enough light to know, just like the Ninevites had enough light to know who God was and that He was able to do what He was able to do, that there's going to be a judgment coming. They have the light of creation and the light of conscience. So, why didn't God just do a, a few tricks in the city of Sodom to secure the repentance? And the short answer is, number one, He's not obligated to do that. And number two, he, the reason for signs is never to secure repentance. That wasn't the purpose of miracles. It wasn't to secure repentance. And God does not bow His knee to His creatures to say, I will do parlor tricks to show you who I am. That's not what He does. He doesn't do that. So, He doesn't have to do signs to secure people's repentance because He has done everything that He needs to do in order to give men just reason to repent and to believe the, believe the Gospel and the light. Doug? Right. It is an object lesson of sorts. So let me give you one more thought. Um, I would suggest to you from what Scripture declares about the righteousness of God's judgment that when we see the justice of God done on any city, on any nation, on any person at the end of time, we are not. We, what I think we are going to be amazed at from an eternal perspective is the amount of light that was rejected. And the unbeliever can, at the end of his life, say, I didn't have enough proof, like a Bertrand Russell. But when we are able to see it from the heavenly perspective and from God's perspective, we're going to say, whoa, look at the amount of light that Bertrand Russell received and he rejected. Nobody is ever going to say God did not give anybody enough light. We're going to be amazed at things that God did to draw people to Himself, to show them love and grace, which should lead them to repentance but it doesn't, and we're going to be amazed at how much they rejected it, how hard the human heart was, that everybody received more than enough light, more than enough proof, more than enough grace to, to lead men to repentance and to kindness. And that's what Paul says in Romans, I think it's chapter 2. The kindness of God, the goodness of God, should lead men to repentance. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He showers mankind, all mankind, with His benefits, and they are beyond number. And that in itself should lead men to repentance, but they reject that light. The light of their conscience and the light of God good, God's goodness. And instead they shake their fist at God. Right. Right. That's Jesus' point is not that everybody in Sodom would be a believer today. Right. Just that the city would have been spared that judgment because they would have repented. Just like Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. And just like Chorazin and Bethsaida, Jerusalem should have repented at the preaching and ministry of Jesus. Dan? Yeah. God would God destroyed them because he the people that he was saving escaped the city, and everybody else was judged righteously for it. We can settle. We can rest in the sovereignty and the providence of God.
in that salvation in that judgment. Yes. Uh, Ray's question is, why was Lot's wife turned to a pillar of salt? Did she enjoy the things of Sodom more than God? Uh, I don't know why she looked back, but I think that the reason she was judged that way is because she disobeyed. They were told not to look back, and she did. Um, I don't think the text indicates why she did it, whether she was loving that or just curious and wanted to see it. or I have no idea. Disobedience, yeah. I mean, even well-intentioned disobedience is still disobedience. You know, even if she was just sorry to see the city or, or, or she was longing to see justice done, maybe. I mean, even if she just wanted to see the wrath of God poured out because it would feed her heart to know that God was just and good in delivering them, even if that's why she disobeyed, she still disobeyed. Well-intentioned disobedience is still disobedience. Right. Right. Uh, was it Uzzah? Is that his name? Uzzah or Uzziah? The man who caught the Ark of the Covenant, Thomas said. Yeah, I mean, what was his, what was his motive? His motive was, I don't want the Ark of my God to fall into the dirt. That was his motive. Good motive. But he made a mistake, and his mistake is that he thought his hands were cleaner than the dirt. And they weren't. And they weren't. He would have been better off to let the dark... I mean, God could keep the ark from hitting the dirt. He's good with that. Whatever the motive was, He profaned the sanctuary of His God by laying His filthy hands on the ark of the covenant. And that was a no-no. And God is completely just to say... I mean, why did God judge Nadab and Abihu? Aaron's sons. Because He said, by those who come near to Me in the sanctuary, I must be regarded as holy. And he told Aaron, don't weep for your sons. They need to learn this lesson, and the whole nation of Israel needs to learn this lesson, that when you approach me, you must regard me as holy. You cannot come flippantly. You cannot come on your own terms. You have to view me as holy. And God is, I think, gracious to all of us in giving us those object lessons which treat us, which instruct us in that way. He is showing to us, this is who I am, and this is how I want you to approach me. And when you do this, I'll bless you, and, and my love over there and my grace is abundant, but... If you do not regard me as holy, then I cannot bless you. So his judgment on Nadab and Abihu is instructive to everybody else. You don't come flippantly to the, the household of God and just do whatever you want and think it's a big joke or a big party. You have to regard him as holy. Ananias and Sapphira is the same way. Why would God strike a couple just for lying? Was the, so that the whole church might fear. And they might regard God and say, oh, oh, we, we can't just take this forgiveness of sins thing flippantly. We don't no longer need a sacrifice. We don't have to come weekly. We can just do whatever we want now. No, you can't abuse grace. And that was the object lesson of Ananias and Sapphira. If you're going to come to me, you must regard me as holy. And that's a gracious object lesson to the rest of us. Even though it costs somebody their lives. Better than obedience than sacrifice, right. Thomas? Instead, better for them to be 
Yeah. The degrees of punishment. <laughs> Good observation. Go to the hell that has the moon bounce and you can't go wrong. And an Easter bunny, right. Any other questions on this or another topic? We've got about seven minutes. Yeah, that's very true. One of the things that I, I go back to in my own mind constantly, keying off of that, is when we get to the end of time and we stand in the kingdom in heaven, I believe that we will be fully aware of who is in hell and what is in hell and what hell it is. I don't think that God is going to wipe out our memory of that. I don't think it's going to cause us pain in eternity. Because I think that we will be able to see it from the eternal perspective and we will be overawed with grace. And we will say, the God of all the earth has done what is good. And I wouldn't change a thing. There's a lot of things that I would change now, but that's because I am here now. But in eternity, I'm not, I wouldn't want to change a thing. I would say, all of this worked out for everybody's good. Everybody got what they want. Everybody got what they lived for. Everybody got what they deserved. Justice has been done. Righteousness has been satisfied. Love and grace has been shown to all peoples, to all nations, to all cities. Everything is good. I wouldn't rewrite a, a, a word of the story. I wouldn't edit anything. Not a jot or a tittle would I change of all that has happened. That's my confidence. I know that I will say that. And I know that we will stand in the land of the living and behold a good God. And we will see it. We will see it from His perspective. And we will say He... Jesus has done all things well. And I would not change a thing. Carol. I was just going through Daniel in chapter uh, 10. Even putting your spouse or your parents or your children or anybody before him is not a good thing. Uh, are you in what chapter? Chapter 10. Oh, chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, right. Right, there's the, the warning there against um, Carol's observation. Anything we put in front of God becomes an idol, even if it's family or well, as well-meaning or well-intentioned as that might be. We all done? Thomas. Okay, expand a little bit on this. Okay, can I expand a little bit more on dispensationalism and dis de delineate a little bit the difference between covenantalism and dispensationalism? It's just you, but that's all right. <laughs> as a dispensationalist, let me let me tell you, let me describe my own perspective. As a dispensationalist, I recognize that there is an old covenant and then there is a new covenant. That's enough to make me a dispensationalist. There's not one covenant; there are two. And the one has been superseded and replaced by the other. The coming of the new covenant is a better covenant. It's not written in stone. It's written on our hearts. It's affected by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God dwells in us. This is not a revamping of the old covenant. The old covenant, Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Not the old covenant slightly rewritten, edited, and enlarged on a little bit. This is the new covenant. 
This is it. So when the Old Covenant was done, it was done. It's over with. And now we have the New Covenant. Now that doesn't mean though that the church has now become the nation of Israel. That we're the new Israel and they're the church. Or Nor does it mean that God is completely done with His people. God has not cast off His people whom He foreknew. There is still a plan of God for the nation of Israel as a nation, as a people. And that's what a dispensationalist believes. That God is still going to pick up His plan for Israel at some point when the church is gone. He's done dealing with the, time, the age of the Gentiles has come to a close. Then you're going to see the tribulation come into effect. You're going to see God pick up His plan for His nation Israel and they're going to be judged and for their resistance and for their disobedience and for their killing of their Messiah. As a people, they're going to be judged. At the end of that, then Christ is going to come back. Now, a covenant believer says... There's only one people of God. And Adam is as much a, per, a, per, a part of that one people as you and I are. There's no distinction ever in the Old Testament between the nation of Israel or the Jews and the New Covenant people. I would say there is an Old Testament, Old Covenant people, and there's a New Testament, New Covenant people. I don't know how you can have an Old Covenant and a New Covenant in your Bible and not be a dispensationalist. At least you have to distinguish the difference between those two covenants. And all dispensationalism means is that God, a dispensation is a way in which God administers His covenants in different periods of time. God's covenant with David, with Noah, with Abraham, with the nation of Israel is different than His covenant with us as the church. It's different covenants. And God works in different ways to administer His rule throughout human history. It's not all the same covenant. It's different, different ways that God works. Jews who repent and believe the Messiah will go to heaven. But they get in under the New Covenant, not the Old Covenant. The Jews who died before Christ were saved by grace through faith, just like you and I are. But they're looking forward to the Messiah. We look back to the Messiah. So it's an Old Covenant, but the Old Covenant didn't... The Old Covenant dealt with the nation of Israel as a whole. It's the blessings that would come through obedience and the curses that would come through disobedience. But within that old covenant, you also had the covenant that God made specifically with David and his line, which affected the Christ. And, of course, that covenant was part of, or at least um, a branch of the Abrahamic covenant, which was that through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Um, and all of the old covenant, the Old Testament, the old covenant law, that those blessings of obedience and cursings of disobedience had to do with the nation of Israel as a, as a nation. But that old covenant couldn't save anybody. You could have a Jew who was outwardly obedient, but was uncircumcised at heart. And so it had to be with the Jews even under the old covenant and even within the nation of Israel, it had to be Jews who had a personal faith in God and a, and a belief in God and were trusting in Him and His eventual atonement for sin. I would I would say that the I would say that the issues yeah my eschatology is that the issues of the revelation with the with the judgment coming in the tribulation is aimed at the people of God. It's Daniel's 70th week. It's the judgment upon the nation of Israel as a nation. Right. Okay, good. 
Okay, there's two issues, two issues here that Ray brought up. Um, Romans 9 says that not all Israel is, is saved, is Israel. And his point there in Romans 9 is that you don't get into, you, you don't get into the covenant just by being born a Jew. Your lineage has nothing to do with it. It's, it's always been by faith. It's, it's never been by works. That's Romans 9. It's always by grace through faith. So just by being a Jew doesn't make you in the new covenant, and it didn't make you saved under the old covenant. But then what does it say when, it, when Paul says all Israel will be saved? He's referring to Old Testament prophets which speak of when Jesus comes back, every eye will see him, and they will mourn for him whom they have pierced. And they will mourn as one mourns for his only son. The nation of Israel eventually... at at, when Christ comes back, there will be a national repentance. When all of the Jews will recognize this is our Messiah, that's what we did to Him, we, apolog- we are hor- horrified at that, and then they will be saved. All Israel will be saved in the future. There will be a national repentance which will proceed or be uh, happen at the same time as the second coming of Christ when He comes back to establish His kingdom. And every eye sees Him. And He comes down on the Mount of Olives to set up His kingdom. And Dave's point is a good one. There may not be many Jews left at that time, too, after the judgment of the tribulation. What about the Gentiles that are left? Well, there will be believers. I would imagine, I don't. I don't know of any scripture that deals with this, but when Christ sets up His kingdom, even during the millennium, there will be believers and unbelievers living on earth under the rule of Christ. How many of those unbelievers are unbelievers before He sets up His kingdom and continues unbelievers? I don't. Yeah, there's an there's an excellent book called There Really Is a Difference by Reginald Showers, and it's uh, just a it's a thin book. It's a paperback, and it just deals with the difference between covenant theology and dispensationalism, and it compares them and contrasts them and talks about the perspectives of each one. And I would recommend that book to you, Doug. Yeah, dispensationalism is in some sense a moving target because you would have what some theologians call leaky dispensationalists, which is what I am. You would have other kind of hardcore dispensationalists which would divide all of human history up into seven different dispensations. And they see them very clearly. The age of innocence with Adam, the age of uh, human government with Noah, the age of, of, of uh, uh, promise with Abraham, law with the Jews, then the church age, then the millennial age, and then eternity. And there's seven of them. I'm, if I didn't give all seven, I apologize. Don't try and count them. But anyway, that's how they kind of split it up. And that's, and that's sort of a tight dispensationalism. Hyper-dispensationalism takes the church age and sort of cuts it up even finer. And that's what we talked about earlier. I'm, I'm a leaky dispensationalist. I don't know if for certain all of those seven dispensations can be clear-cut like that in order to come up with the perfect number seven. But there is def- definitely two. there is definitely different ways in which God deals with His people. So, do all... And the question is, some people would say, well, you know, as a dispensationalist, then you don't believe that the gifts are for today. Well, that might be how some dispensationalists would say that, but really the doctrine or the idea of dispensationalism proper 
has nothing to do with whether the sign gifts were today or not. That's a totally different subject. So some people might say, well, if you're dispensationalist, then you don't believe the sign gifts are to, for today. And they're kind of trying to cut that up and say, well, I'm a, I would say I'm a dispensationalist, and I acknowledge the sign gifts had a purpose in this dispensation, but they don't have a purpose right now in this dispensation. So... Hyperdispensationalism versus dispensationalism, really. That was what Jess asked, is the difference between hyperdispensationalism and dispensationalism. If you're a dispensationalist, does that mean you have to believe that the signs have ceased? And no, it doesn't. There's a lot of dispensationalists that are charismatic who believe the sign gifts are today. But there's still dispensationalism, because dispensationalism has to do with, does God have a plan for the nation of Israel? Are there more than one covenant? And is God going to pick up his plan for the nation of Israel at some point? That's the issue behind dispensationalism, not sign gifts. <laughs> dispensationalism does, and let's close with this observation. Dispensationalism does radically affect your eschatology, your view of the end times. If you're a dispensationalist, you're going to be premillennial. And you might be pre-trib, regarding the tribulation, you could be pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib. But you're going to be premillennial. If you're not a dispensationalist, if you're a covenant, then you're going to be stuck with one of two possibilities. Either you deny that there's ever going to be a millennium, or you would say that we are in the millennium right now. This is the time when Satan is bound, and this is the era of peace and prosperity. And Jesus is ruling today, doing perfect justice. And eventually, he's going to come back at the end of the, at the, end of the millennium. So, it does affect your view of end times. That's the amillennial view. One more thing, and I'll close with this and then we pray. Whether or not you are a... Let me say this. I am a dispensationalist because I am committed to a certain way of interpreting Scripture. When I read the prophets, I interpret the prophets the same way I interpret any other passage of Scripture. It's all the same. Historical context, grammatical a literary, a literal interpretation of Scripture unless the context dictates otherwise. So my interpretive scheme drives me to be a dispensationalist and a premillennialist. It is the opposite with amillennialists, I would argue. And I've argued with amillennialists and I've told them this. Their interpretive scheme is dictated by their amillennialism. They're committed to denying an, a millennium. So they have to come up with a way of interpreting prophecy that they can get out from underneath of this idea of a millennium and the rule of Christ. So my commitment to a certain approach to interpreting Scripture makes me a premillennialist and a dispensationalist because I have one hermeneutic, one interpretive scheme, one way of looking at Scripture, and I apply it to all the texts equally in the same way. Not so. An amillennialist will interpret Scripture one way when you're dealing with the epistles of Paul, but any time prophecy comes into the mix off the field they go. We get into meta, uh, metaphors and allegories and symbols and it's not literal and that's not meant for us and that's what the Jews thought it, but now we interpret this spiritually and it's a whole different ballgame. So, but amillennialists are still believers, so don't get off on any kind of radical tangent. Yes, one more comment from the clown and then we close. Okay. Alright, let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the fellowship we've enjoyed this morning and for our discussion. We thank you that it has been lively and engaging. And we ask now that you would watch over our service, which is to follow, that you would continue to bless us and instruct us and teach us from your word. We commit our time to you today in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.